Boy, anybody just had one of those weeks? Man, I've had a week this week. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we ask you to be with the message today, Father. Lord, again, I thank you for this church. Lord, you know the words that need to be communicated today, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to communicate them in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we live in a day and time where we love greatness. I, I mean, I don't know what it is, but we're all drawn to people who are making a difference in the world. I mean, we love to get on Facebook and see the videos of people making a difference, and we share those videos, and they impact us, and they get millions of views. I mean, we look for people who are making a difference. There's something deep inside of us that craves almost wanting to be part of something bigger than we are by ourselves. We crave it. We look for it. We put our faith in these people. We put them up on a pedestal. We long to see greatness in people. We all want a hero to believe in. We love reading about them. We love hearing about them. We love seeing them in action. It's funny, I can go back to my youth and there's certain songs that instantly I can remember for whatever reason. And I grew up, yesterday was my grandmother's 85th birthday, and I was very close to my grandmother. My mom was the baby, and so wherever we moved, granny moved, and we just grew up around my grandmother my whole life. And so I spent most of my weekends with my grandmother. And here's what happened at my grandmother's house on Saturdays. My grandfather's name was Moose, and Moose watched the Atlanta Braves on TBS. The Atlanta Braves were horrible. But we watched them. And I grew up loving Dale Murphy. I, I remember everything there was about the Braves. But here's what happened. The Braves had a very set schedule on Saturdays. On Saturdays, the Braves never played night games. And there was a reason they never played night games. Because TBS owned the Braves. But TBS also owned wrestling. And at Granny's house at 6.05... Wrestling came on. And you didn't mess with granny during wrestling time. I had an old school granny. I'm talking about one of them grannies that, that smoked Lucky Strikes and dipped snuff at the same time. <laughs> granny thought wrestling was real. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Granny fell out of her chair one time and broke her hip watching wrestling. That's how we roll in the Lamb family. Explains a lot, don't it? When wrestling came on, though, there was a song that came on with it. I need a hero. I'm holding on for a hero until the end of the night. He's got to be strong, he's got to be fast, and he's got to be fresh from the fight. And it's funny, I remember that song. I remember her riding on the white horse in the video, and they'd mix in wrestling clips, and it was just something that would pump you up, because here's the deal, we're all looking for a hero. We want someone that we can believe in, and I think that's one of the things to me that draws me to the Bible. This book is full of amazing heroes, amazing people who did amazing things. This book is full of people that in every sense of the word literally changed the world. But what strikes me about the people in this book is though they changed the world, 
And though they were heroes, and though they achieved greatness, not a one of them ever sought after greatness. Matter of fact, they're not even the type of people that we would look at and automatically see greatness in. But that's the exact type of people that God used. They were unfit saints. And we've been looking at some of those unfit saints this month. Now, if I was to ask you this morning, and I made a statement this morning, not if I asked you, but if I made a statement, and I said, hands down, without a doubt, the greatest person in the Bible is Jesus. Now, listen, there's not much that Christians will agree on. But I don't imagine anybody would argue with that statement. The greatest person in all the Bible is Jesus. This book is about Jesus. You can complicate it. You can add your rules to it. You can put your religious spin on it. You can look at it through your denominational glasses. But at the end of the day, every part of this book, the Old Testament, the Gospel, the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, there's one message throughout the entire Old Testament. Jesus is coming. In the Gospels, the first part of the New Testament, there's one message throughout it. Jesus is here. The rest of the New Testament, there's a message throughout. Jesus is coming back again. Hands down, the greatest person in this book is Jesus. But, if I was to ask you who the second greatest person in the Bible is, we could debate it. Some would say it's Moses. Some would say it's Nehemiah. A lot of people would say it's Paul. A lot of people would say it's Joshua. We could ask and we could ask and there'd be all kinds of different answers. We could agree on who the greatest is. But we could never agree on who the second greatest is. Now, if I were to ask you not who the greatest person ever in the Bible is, but if I was to ask you who the greatest person who ever lived, period, was, the fact of the matter is the large majority of people... Whether you believe in him or not as the son of God would say that Jesus was the greatest person who ever lived. Because here's the deal. Nobody denies that Jesus lived. Now they might deny that he was the son of God. They might deny that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead in three days. But even an atheist will tell you Jesus was a real human being who lived. History has proven that. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about him, shaped by him. Countries have been shaped by his teachings. Even Time Magazine named him the greatest person who ever lived. So there wouldn't be much argument that Jesus was the greatest person who ever lived. But again, if I was to ask you who the second greatest person that ever lived was, man, we'd fight about it. Some people would say Mother Teresa. Some people would say Martin Luther King. Some people would say Billy Graham. There'd be all kinds of debate about who the second greatest was. But there'd be no debate about who the first greatest was. But here's an interesting thing in the Bible. While we look and that we see Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus actually gave another answer when it came to who was the greatest. Look what he said. He said, I tell you among those born of women... Now, I'm not a real scientist or a theologian, but I would imagine that everybody who's ever born has been born of a woman. 
In the day and time where you can be whatever you want to be, and that's cool, and I'm not getting into it today, the fact of the matter is I've never met anybody who says, I was born of a man. Just haven't. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that is a staggering statement. The greatest man in history, the greatest man who ever lived, the Jesus Christ, the one that very few people would debate is the greatest, most influential person who's ever lived. He throws heat and he says, hey, the greatest one ever born, the greatest person who ever lived was John. So if Jesus says that about John, it's probably someone that we ought to look at. <laughs> and as you study out John and you begin to read about John, you'll find out very quickly He's the definition of an unfit saint. John is not who we would picture when you say he's the greatest person who ever lived. I mean, the first thing that you'll notice about John is he doesn't really fit in. I don't know your standards for greatness, but he doesn't really fit into my standard of greatness. His name in the Bible is John the Baptist. But it's better translated in the English, John the Baptizer. He was known for baptizing people. Trust me, John was not a Baptist. Matter of fact, most Baptists would not allow him to darken the doors of their building. Okay? So, he was John the Baptizer. Here's how John's story starts. It's an amazing story. He had a dad, and he had a mom. Kind of like you and I. It's how the story starts for a lot of people. His dad was Zechariah. He was a priest, and he served full-time in ministry. So John was a PK. He was a pastor's kid, so he was doomed from the start. Now, John has a dad, and amazingly enough, John has a mom. Her name's Elizabeth. Elizabeth is an older woman. What that means, I don't know, but we know she's an older woman who's past the age of being able to give birth in this time. Zechariah is an old man. He's past the age of being able to uh, conceive or whatever men do to have kids. You know, I can't remember. It's been so long since I've been in school. And here's the deal. They had no children. They've raised up. They've grown older in life, and their time has passed, and they've never had children. And, and, and so Zechariah begins to give all his time to the temple. He's full-time as a priest. They're barren. There's no hope of them having kids any time in their future. And the Bible actually says this caused them deep grief. It caused them strife. As you can imagine, Elizabeth wanted children, and she was saddened by the fact that she couldn't have children. So one day, Zechariah's doing about his priest business. i got to give you all this background, so bear with me, because I want you to know who John is to see how unfit he was. One day, he's doing his thing, and he's visited by an angel named Gabriel. Now, here's the deal. I don't know if you've ever done a study of angels, but if you go out and study angels, Gabriel was kind of like the Michael Jordan of angels. Bam, he's high up on the chain. I mean, this ain't, now, ain't your run-of-the-mill angel, okay? This ain't your fallen angel. This ain't your angel to just get stuck with you. This ain't your guardian angel. I mean, this is like the pimp daddy angel. When he comes on the scene, you're like, bam, I better listen. Gabriel shows up on the scene, He's a big deal. 
And he tells old Zachariah, old Zach, hey, Zach, guess what, dude? Y'all are about to have a baby. Zach's an old man. And he probably does what I, like, I, when I get nervous, and this does not work good in the Lamb house, especially when Christine and I are having a disagreement, I get nervous or I start to get angry, I chuckle. <laughs> it's kind of like my way of settling down. She doesn't take it as my way of settling down. She takes it as I'm being disrespectful, which makes me more nervous and I chuckle more. And it doesn't go good. Zacharias seemed to have this same problem. Gabriel shows up. He says, hey, old man. Now, I picture this dude old, like Doug Knight old. Okay? So old. Okay? Old. Can you imagine someone showing up to Doug and saying, hey, her Kathy's pregnant. That ain't going to go over good. So Zachariah is nervous, and he chuckles. He giggles. And this don't sit well with Gabriel. He's kind of like Christine. <laughs> he says, hey, Zach, not only are you going to have a baby, but now you've irritated me. So until the baby comes, you don't get to talk anymore. You're a mute. I would imagine that was a problem for a priest. You know, someone asked one time, do you have disability insurance? I don't even have regular insurance. But disability, I mean, unless I lose my voice, I can roll up out here in a wheelchair. I mean, how hard is it? You know, about the only thing that would ever affect me from doing this is my voice. And here's Zach, and he ain't got no voice now. So he can't even communicate. He goes home, and Elizabeth has been visited. She knows she's knocked up. She's excited. And a few months later... Well, nine months later, here comes a baby. Now, here's the interesting thing. John was baptized, I mean, not baptized. John was born a few months before Jesus Christ. John and Jesus were cousins. So they were related. So Zachariah and Elizabeth, they do as they're instructed to do. They take him out and they raise him in the way that he would come to know and love God. And, and, and actually, Gabriel gave them some very specific instructions on how to raise John the Baptist. He wasn't John the Baptist at that time, but just John. They told him that he was not allowed to drink any alcohol. And that he had to be raised in a particular way. And as you read about John, it would make sense that he's not allowed to have any alcohol because the dude was crazy enough sober. I mean, you ever have one of those friends that you're like, the last thing they need is some alcohol to take them to a whole nother level? Like, I mean, like, they're crazy enough sober. That was John. I mean, John really, at the end of the day, and we're going to get into this, like, I don't know any other way to describe John, except he was a stone-cold freak. I mean, dude was crazy. He's a freak in every way. How many of you have ever been down to Little Five Points? Little Five Points. I love Little Five Points. My wife and I go down there often, and every time we go down there, there's a dude on the corner preaching the gospel. He doesn't look to me like someone who would be preaching the gospel. He stinks. He smells horrible. He is so dirty and nasty. His fingernails are all long and they got black stuff on And his hair is all crazy. And he looks like he's had the same clothes on for about 15, 16 days. And he's just out there screaming on the street corner. And every time I go down there and I see him, it's just a natural reaction that the first thing that comes to my mind is, I can't imagine God called him to do that. Now, I don't know if God called him to do it or not, 
But here's what I also get to think about. Every time I do this, then I get this feeling comes in my mind. I said, but that's what John the Baptist looked like. And then I get this thought in my head. Oh, yeah, God called John the Baptist. So stinky guy in little five points. That's how in my head I picture John the Baptist just so we're on the uh, same thing. So you got to understand this about John. John lived out in the woods, okay? He's Mountain Man Jack, if you will. I mean, it, it, anybody remember the show Grizzly Adams? That was another thing at Granny's house. On Saturdays, Grizzly Adams came on. Now, I dug me some Grizzly Adams. Now, I know you find that surprising now because when you think Gary Lamb, you do not think outdoors. But at that time in my life, i got to be honest with you, I wanted to be Grizzly Adams. Like, I remember praying. I knew I was preaching a sermon, and I asked my granny if she remembered this other day, and she said, yesterday, she said, yes, she did. It was her 85th birthday yesterday. I said, you remember when I used to pray that prayer when I used to be at your house? And she said, what, that God would give you a bear? Like, I wanted to be like Grizzly Adams. I wanted a bear. My sister wanted a pony. I wanted a bear to be like Grizzly Adams. Grizzly Adams, bear is a pet. Grizzly Adams living in the woods. Grizzly Adams freak. John the Baptist freak. Yet God used him. He, he lives out in the woods, and the Bible says that he wore clothing made out of camel's hair with a big leather belt around him. <laughs> that, that amazes me. I just get the feeling that John the Baptist, and you know what I mean when I say this, he's just one of those guys. You know how they, like, they walk in, you're like, eh, that's, that's just... It's just John. That's just the way he is. You know, he lives out in the woods. Wears camel hair clothing. I, I imagine that when I get to heaven, I'm going to instantly know who John is because he's going to be running around the streets and his hair is going to be all wild and his, be his beard is going to be all long. He's going to have like tree limbs stuck in it. He's going to not smell real good. You know, even though he's in heaven because he's just John. I imagine he's got, like, you know what I'm talking about when you meet someone and they got, like, that crazy eye? You know, and you're like, are they looking at me or are they looking at someone else? Well, what's going on here? And, and they talk crazy, and you leave them, but then you process what they were talking about. You're like, oh, that actually made sense in his crazy way. Oh, I see what you, I mean, come on. Don't we all know somebody? Even if we don't know personally, we know somebody like that. We've seen somebody like Every town has that guy. When I lived in Iowa, we had Chicken Man. Everybody knew Chicken Man. He walked around with a chicken, and he preached Jesus all the time. When I first moved to Canton, they had a guy named Jesus Man. I don't know whatever happened to Jesus Man. I don't know if Jesus Man died, but he would be every Saturday morning at the gazebo in downtown where nobody, you think there's nobody in downtown Canton now? You should have been there 15 years ago. There was nobody downtown. But he would preach heaven hot, and I mean heaven sweet and hell hot to nobody. Everybody talked to him. He pushed a, I remember he pushed a shopping cart around town. He must have died or someone killed him or something. I don't know. But he was a freak. This is how I picture John the Baptist. <laughs> then the Bible talks about his diet. And basically it says that he lived on a diet of locusts and honey. I mean, you can't raise a kid on a diet of locusts and honey. 
and expect them to grow up normal. I'm just saying. I mean, you're feeding your kid locusts and you're feeding your kid honey. He's going to grow up a little off kilter. He lives on bugs. He lives on sugar. I would imagine that gave him the shakes. I go up here to the Oak House almost every day now and work. It just gets me out of this building. There's windows and I enjoy it. And there's this guy that comes in every single day about 22 years old. And I, I, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I don't know much about coffee. And so, um, but he orders a triple shot of espresso every morning. He works downtown somewhere. He comes back after lunch every day, and I watch him. He orders a triple shot of espresso. And then before they close at 5 o'clock, he comes in and he orders a triple shot of espresso. And he told me one time, he said, I love espresso. I said, I know you do. He said, I'm so crazy about it. This is what he told me. I don't even know what this really means. He said, I'm so crazy about espresso that whenever I buy something, I ask myself, how many espressos could I buy for that? And he shakes all the time. I don't know his name, so I call him Shaky. I asked him when I was, has Shaky been in here today? And like, why wouldn't he shake? He drinks espressos all the time. And here's the funny thing about him. He's a wellness coach. He teaches people how to eat properly. It's weird. But I would imagine John just shook all the time. I mean, he's popping locusts and shooting honey. And man, he ain't took a bath in forever. And he's got camel hair on. And he's just one of those guys that when he's walking down the sidewalk, even if you don't want to be judgmental, you're going to the other side and grabbing your kid's hand just a little bit tighter. That's John. (laughs) That's the guy that Jesus said, among men born of a woman, there is none greater. That's crazy. Then about 30 years old, John decides, it's time for me to fulfill my calling and start preaching. So John leaves the woods, but he doesn't change anything about himself. So he rolls up into town with his hair going all over the place. He's stinking. He's got honey stuck in his beard, locusts stuck in his teeth, camel hair on, and he's screaming one message and one message only, repent of your sins. And man, he pulled no punches. (laughs) And no one looked at John at first and said, man, that's a man of God. No, they looked at him and said, that's a guy who needs a padded room. But something began to happen as he did that. He comes out of the woods and he's screaming for repentance. And he wants every person to know they're wicked and sinful and evil. And they're an enemy of God and that God is upset with them. Now here's what I respect about John. He preached that message to everyone. The church today doesn't preach that message to everyone. We preach that message to people who are different than us who don't look like we think they ought to look or love like we think. And so we pick and choose who's evil. John just flat out came and said, man, you're all evil, and you all need to turn. I mean, he went to the political leader. He said, you're in sin. Quit lording over the people. Knock it off. He went to the religious people and said, you are self-righteous hypocrites. Stop. Knock it off. 
He went to the leaders of the army. I mean, honey dripping down, locusts in his teeth, smelling so bad that they're stepping back because his breath's stinking because he ain't used no Crest toothpaste in a while. And he said, hey, knock it off. You're extorting the people for money. You're in sin. You're wrong. God's coming, and you don't want to be an enemy of God. And an amazing thing happened. John, not afraid of anyone, John, do you understand what I'm saying when I say there's a fine line between going crazy and being crazy? John walked that line with precision. And an amazing thing happens. He's not afraid of the politicians. He's not afraid of the army. He's not afraid of the religious. He just serves God and does what God tells him to do. He tells people to own their darkness and turn to the light. He takes them down the river and he begins to baptize them. Now, you need to understand, at this point in time, there had been 400 years of silence from a prophet of God. There had not been a prophet of God come on the scene proclaiming the message of God. So the wickedness had reached an all-time high because there's no accountability. And the people over the years had got worse and worse and worse. And here's what happened, though. At first, they were leery of John. Then suddenly, they were drawn to John. They saw greatness in John. They saw God in John. I believe that even though he preached hard, they knew he loved them and deeply cared for their souls. I have people all the time say, you're one of those churches that don't preach on sin. I say, I preach against everything that moves. I say, you ought to go listen to some of my sermons. Every time they'll come back and be like, man, how do you get away with saying that to your people? I say, well, first of all, they're not my people. There are people I get to do life with. I'm just the pastor. And I said, because, man, I can be hard on them because at the end of the day, they know I love them. I can't tell you how many times over the last two years I've got a private message about how inappropriate I am to James Hatfield. <laughs> here's the deal. He deserves every bit of it. If he's an idiot, I'm going to tell him he's an idiot. But here's what he knows. He knows I love him. He knows I'm going to do anything for him, and I'll take a bullet for him. And if he ever screws up, I'll go drag him out of where he was screwed up at. And when you love somebody, man, you can speak truth in their life. And if you can't speak truth in their life, they must not know you love them. John must, the people must have known that John loved him because, man, he was hardcore. People start going crazy over the teachings of John, even though he seemed crazy. He starts having thousands and thousands and thousands of people following him. And he starts to get a platform. He's getting popular. Now, at the same time, Jesus had started his ministry. And he's getting a huge following. So you got John over here getting a huge following. And you got Jesus over here getting a huge following. And, and something began to happen in the followers of John. I didn't say it happened to John. But it happened to the followers of John. They began to get jealous of the following that Jesus was having. They began to get jealous because Jesus' following is getting bigger than John's following. John's preaching that the Messiah's coming. And Jesus is preaching that he is the Messiah. So Jesus begins to get elevated over John. And the people that are following John begin to get mad about it. Look what the Bible says in Acts chapter 3. After this, Jesus and the disciples went into the Judean countryside, and they spent some time with him and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. 
an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Hey, hey, John, that dude, Jesus, he's baptizing people too. And they're coming to him instead of coming to you. We need to step up our game. We need to do something to draw a bigger crowd than him. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I have said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine, and it's now complete. And look what John says. He must become greater, and I must become less. You talk about somebody who was secure in their calling. You talk about somebody who knew their mission. He said, my job is to go tell people the Messiah is coming. The Messiah has now come. I don't need a bigger following than him. I was just preparing the way for him. Now it's time for him to become greater and for me to decrease. Man, that is powerful. John knew his role was to prepare the way, even though everyone looked at him and said, that's not somebody God would use. God looked at him and said, that's exactly who I'm going to use. In a room like this today, we got some people and God's got a mission for your life. God's got a purpose for your life. Here's what I love about John. John never thought he had to be the big dog. He was content knowing his role. We have so many people out there today, they think, man, I can't be the lead pastor, or I can't be the worship pastor, or I can't be the one getting the attention, or I can't get this, or I do this, this, and this, and they get the credit, and I'm not going to do it. Man, John knew his role. And God used him for greatness. And Jesus said, hey, the greatest among them was John. Crazy John. Mountain man John. Backwoods John. Honey in his beard and locusts in his teeth John. Oh, camel hair John. Oh, John, it tells everybody to repent and don't give a crap when anyone thinks. John starts, Jesus starts baptizing, and John's followers get mad about it. They came to John and said, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him now. John had a following, and here was the problem with John's followers. They wanted John to be the big dog. They wanted to put John in a place that God never wanted him to be. They wanted John to have the attention. They wanted people following John. But now Jesus is on the scene and people are following him. So they're crying to John, oh my God, we messed up. We chose and followed the wrong guy. No, you didn't. You just thought you had to be the number one. Only one person can be number one. <laughs> He's at the height at his popularity. And John wasn't phased by it because John wasn't looking for greatness. He found it by accident. John knew what he was on earth for. He knew his job was to prepare people. He said, he must become greater and I must become less. The KJV, the King James Version of the Bible says, he must increase and I must decrease. 
John wasn't worried about fame. He wasn't worried about the crowds. He wasn't worried about people leaving his group and going to another group. He wasn't worried about getting all the glory. John said, man, I'm an outcast. I lived in the woods. I don't fit the norm. And look how God has chosen to use me. He chose me to prepare the way for Jesus. And if i got to slide off the scene now, I'll slide off the scene. I wish to God early in my ministry, I would have studied this out. I believe that had I understood these principles, it would have stopped me from some of the heartache I've had along the way. Because John understood some things that we need to understand today. They say the people in the church, well, all they say the people in the seats, most of the time will have the same personality as the people on the stage. That's why you're drawn to them. So here's what I know from the people out there. We have a group of people who don't like to follow the rules. We have a group of people who don't know how not to share their opinion. And we have a group of people that struggle, like I struggle, with wanting to make sure I get all the glory for everything that happens. And when we get the glory, he doesn't get the glory, and things go off kilter. God looks out, and he says, I want to use this group of people. He said they're not the type of people that anyone else would use. I went to a city council meeting this week. And I got up, and I said, I would like to give my view. And I said, I feel like I'm, I have a unique perspective. I'm a resident of this community. I'm a business owner of this community. And I said, I'm a pastor of this community. And I gave my view, and it wasn't what they thought. It was, it was about an alcohol ordinance, and I was for the ordinance. And when I sat down, the next guy who got up, got up and said, I also am a pastor in this community. And he began to preach about the evils of alcohol for about 10 minutes. He said that we were, literally, Alice, am I lying? He got up there and said, we were going to turn Canton into Panama City Beach if we allow alcohol. That's what he said. And like, it was crazy. And he talked about debauchery. Or, or he used the word, he said it was 13 times. And all he talks about drunk. And he was just preaching and screaming. And I was thinking to myself, man, like, and people were amening him. It was just weird. Like, nobody amened me. Alice just sat there. Rhonda just sat there, Le- left me out to dry. Afterwards, though, I'm leaving, and I had some people come in there like, man, I didn't know you were a pastor. Man, that was awesome. Man, we need people like, hey, God looks down and says, I want to use screwed up people. I want to use messed up people. I'm looking for people. They think they can't be used. They think the church looks down and says, man, you can't be used. You're divorced, or you're an addict, or you're a drunk, or, man, you're this, or you're that, or that. You don't believe like I do. You're liberal, and you're conservative, and you voted for this person, or you voted for that person. Or, man, you're this, or you're that, or you love this person. And the church says, hey, all these things, you can't be used. You can't be used, man. You live in the woods and you got honey in your beard and locusts in your teeth and you got camel hair and you're screaming like a crazy man. How can God use you? And God says, that's who I want to use. The problem is that we only want to be used the way we want to be used. For the longest time, I only wanted to be used if I could have the biggest church in town. I did. And when I got the biggest church in town, guess what? It wasn't good enough. Then I had to get something else. I didn't only have to be known in this town. I had to be known all over. And my last year in that church, we were named the 13th fastest growing church in America. I had a blog at that time. Christianity Today is the number two blog, Christian blog in America. And it wasn't enough. Because I was 13th. 
I meant there were 12 people in front of me. I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't care about God. I cared about how can I be known. And I've told you this story before. I had a preacher, an old preacher come to me. He said, I want to take you to lunch. I said, take me to lunch. He said, can I ask you two questions? I said, you can ask me whatever you want to ask me. This old pastor, he'd never had more than 100 people in a church service, so I thought he didn't know anything. Now, the fact he'd been in ministry for 50 years faithfully, had never had a bad word said about him, and no one judged his character, and he had it together. He was the real deal. It didn't matter to me. In my mind, he'd never broken 100 people. So who's he to talk to me? I'm Gary Lamb. He looked at me, and I was 32 years old. I think at that time I was about 30 years old. And my, my talent had taken me a lot further than my character could sustain me. And he said, if you could have the most effective church in this community and thousands became saved and the homeless were fed and the, those hungry and people were clothed and man, the addicts were cleaned up and there was no issues and you could literally transform this town. But nobody outside this town ever knew your name. Would you do it? And I remember looking at him and being like, uh-uh. I wouldn't. He looked at me and said, let me ask you one more question. I said, what's that? He said, is Jesus enough I'm pastoring a church very fast growing church and I looked at him I said well I mean yeah I mean, he's enough but I want this this and this too I couldn't say yes Jesus was enough and I imploded lost everything and I often wondered to myself man had I taken John the Baptist a little more serious and realized man it's not about me it's about him he must increase, and I must decrease. Man, we love to put people up on pedestals. And John said, I don't need to be put up on a pedestal. I did my job. Now it's his turn to come on the scene. You know, it's funny now. People ask me all the time, like, would you ever go back? And I would never go back. Man, I, you guys drive me nuts. I drink more being your passion than I've ever drank in my life. You guys stress me out. You make my hair, my beards turn gray because of you. Like, man, like y'all are a lot to deal with. But I wouldn't go anywhere but right here because it's not about me. For the, first, I can, for the first time ever, I realized it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's not about having the biggest church. I just want to point people to Jesus. But here's my concern. It took me about three, four, it took me about 38 years to realize that. I don't want that to happen to you. I want you to realize God can use you, and God has a plan for you. But God has a specific plan, and you need to follow his plan. The first week of this series, we discovered unfit saints happen when we get past our insecurities. We talked about Moses. Last week, we discovered unfit saints happen when they realize that God uses us right where we are. We talked about Moses. This week, I want you to realize that unfit saints happen when we humble ourselves and make it about Jesus. Here's some things I notice about John. The first thing I notice about John is John knew who he was. Better yet, better yet, John knew who he wasn't. The people of Israel were desperate for the arrival of the Messiah. They'd been waiting for the Messiah. They had heard for years the Messiah was coming. John shows up, people are following him, and people wanted to make John the Messiah. He's the one. We've been waiting for hundreds of years, and now he's on the scene, and he's the one. He's the one that's going to deliver us from our sins. But John knew that wasn't his calling. John knew that wasn't his job. John knew he 
wasn't God. He refused to read his own press. He refused to buy into the hype. I always tell you, anytime I create some controversy, every time, whether it's needles or city council meetings, you guys lose y'all's minds on Facebook. I just post my thoughts and I go away. And you're like, I can't believe this guy said I'm like, I didn't see it. I can't believe he said I didn't see it. For the first time ever, I got to give someone of influence some advice this week. Our sheriff sent me a message. How many of you saw the sheriff's post this week? Standing over the felon, smiling. I thought it was funny. I was going to lie to you. I also knew the minute I saw it, he was going to hit the fan. And he sends me a message. He's like, man, I didn't mean for that to look like that. And I see how it could take. And he said, man, thank you for your support. I said, can I give you one piece of advice? He said, yeah. I said, just ignore it. You deleted it. You moved on. I said, don't throw gasoline. I said, you don't need to get out and justify it. You don't need to explain it away. Just let it go away. He did. That's what I do. Y'all get on there and act crazy, and I don't ever, I don't ever even comment. What the needle thing was like 2,700 comments. I didn't comment one time. This week about the city council, I think it's up to like 180 comments. I, didn't com- I only commented one time and said, hey, I will be sending my thoughts to our councilman. That's all I said. Because I, I don't need to hear the press. I don't need to hear those that are like, yeah, Gary, go get them. And I don't need to hear the people that are like, yeah, Gary, you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> I know what I feel like God's called me to do. I know who I am and I know who I'm not. And it took me a long time to get to that point. John 3 says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. John said, I've told you guys who I am. Y'all keep wanting to put me on this pedestal. I'm not on this pedestal. So many people keep saying, Gary, you need to run for council. I don't want, that's a step down. I don't want to run for council. I don't want to run for mayor. I don't care enough. I care about downtown. I don't care about water treatment plants and budgets for, I don't care. But everybody's like, Gary, even the council, you, you ought to do this and you ought to run. You'd win. And this, everybody likes me. In this day and time, they like controversy and you'd win. I don't want to. I know my calling. My calling is Action Church here in the ghetto of Canton. That's just what it is. I don't care if anybody outside of this ever knows me or wants me. Some of the day said, hey, you ought to go to this church conference with me. And so I went and looked at the speaker. I have been to a church conference in 10 years. And I didn't know one person speaking at this church conference before. I knew everybody speaking at church conference. I was like, I don't know anybody. And none of those guys know me. And I was like, that's nice. I like that. Before, I would have never liked that because I thought I was God. I thought everything was about me. Everything was about making my name known. Here's the deal today. You're not God. I know that should be a common sense thing. But the problem with so many times is we think we're God. We want to help out in the clothing pantry. We want to help out at Christmas things. We want to help out at Thanksgiving things. Or we want to help out with better school things. But what we really want is we just want all the credit for doing it. And it bothers us when we don't get the credit because we want to be the Savior. I love when people come to me and they ask about the, the yard sale or the club. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know nothing about it. Go ask this person. You're the pastor. I don't, I don't know. I don't care. I do care, but I don't care. Like, I don't know. That's someone else's calling and let them do it. We, we, <laughs> we think we're the one calling the shots. 
when God's calling the shots. We think we're the ones in control. And if we want to be used by God, we got to realize who we are. We're just followers of Jesus. You might think you're God. You might want all the attention of God. You might think even in your little world for a short time you are God. Because it's amazing how you can be a big shot in a little world. I often share this story. It has nothing to do with it, but it's amazing. So when I lost Revolution, I moved across the street, literally across the street to an apartment. Now, the church I pastored met in the movie theater. Three services, 12, 13, 1,400 people every Sunday. I wrote an article every month in a magazine here in town. I thought everybody, because in my little world, I was a big dog. And I moved in this apartment complex, and I remember this old lady next door. Well, she wasn't that old. She was about 40-something years old, and, um, which at that time seemed old to me. Now it doesn't seem so old to me. And she was in a wheelchair, and she was a real cool chick. And, man, she said, man, who are you? I said, oh, my name's Gary. What do you do for a living? Cause, like, well, I used to pastor the church across the street over there. Revolution. She said, there's a church across the street? I was like, yeah, they're in that movie theater. Haven't you seen our billboards all over town and our signs all over town? Don't you read around Canton Magazine? Don't you? Gary Lamb. It's like, I didn't know there was a church over there. You know why? Because she didn't care about church. In her world, it was non-existent. You know what I mean? And then it's funny. So then I got into insurance adjusting and this roofing thing. And I remember the first time I ever showed up at the roofing distributor. And this guy pulled in. Johnny Nelson. And everybody's like, that's Johnny Nelson. I'm like, crap, Johnny Nelson. He was like the roofing God. <laughs> you know? Like in that world, it was a whole other world. And I'm sure in the painting world, there's a whole other painting world. In the barbecue world, there's a whole barbecue. There's all these little tribes that we don't know about. And in the grand scheme of things, we're nothing. We think we're swimming in an ocean and we're just living in an aquarium. We're not God. It's not about us. <laughs> this was a changing principle in my life. Once I realized I wasn't God, you know what it did? It took all the pressure off. I don't get stressed over the finances of this place. You know what I tell God? God, offerings have been low and I don't know how we're going to pay rent. Hey, I love you, big guy. You're going to look real dumb if we get thrown out. But if we get thrown out, cool with it. Ain't my issue. You're God, not me. Hey, God, they're mad. God, they're really mad at you. You better handle that. It's amazing how it takes off the pressure. You want to be used to God? Realize you're not God. Man. So many of us only see our individual selves, so we're loyal to what's best for us instead of what's best for the big picture. We become very selfish. And then we come up with some vision for our life. I want to be this and have this and do this. And we devote ourselves to serving us instead of God saying, I had this plan for your life. And had you followed me, you'd have known peace and contentment and purpose and vision like you've never known before. <laughs> it's, let me give you a newsflash this morning. It is not about you. Let me say it again. It meaning everything that goes on in this world, is not about you. It's about him. John knew this. He lived his life knowing his calling. And that's the second thing. John knew, who, knew his calling. He knew why he was created. He knew his purpose. He knew why God had him on earth. He knew why he got out of bed in the morning. 
John 3 says, you yourselves can testify, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just here sent ahead of him. John knew he wasn't the Savior. He knew he was just called to go ahead and prepare the people that the Savior was coming. Once you discover the purpose for your life, it will change your life. Long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived in the mind of God. He has a purpose for you and a plan for you and a vision for your life. And so many people live their whole lives not fulfilling it. And what a waste of time to know that the creator of the universe wants to do something great with you. But you're so busy chasing the dollar. And you're so busy chasing possessions. And you're so busy doing what you want to do. And God says, man, I can bring you peace. And I can bring you contentment. And I can bring you the joy, the peace that passes all understanding. But you got to follow me. I have about destroyed my life not understanding what happiness was. Chasing it, going after it, never being enough. It will kill you. I've probably gone on about a year now going to the counselor being like, let's talk about contentment. Let's talk about what true happiness is because i got to figure it out. You know what I mean? Because I'm going to run everybody in my life off again if I don't figure it out because I'm always chasing it. And I'm starting to learn what it is and what my calling is. That's why people all the time call us and say, man, does your church do this or do y'all do that? Or why do y'all? Because here's the deal. I know my calling. I've shared this with you before. My calling is not to pastor. That might shock you. My calling is to create an environment where those far from God can come in and realize they have a purpose for their life. That's my calling. So that's why I'm not the best hospital visitor, and I don't counsel people, and I don't like to do weddings, and I, don't, and I used to get real, I, don't, I know my calling. Now here's what's so great about this, we're the body. So if you fulfill your calling, Scott, that, you become the finger over here. And if you fulfill your calling, you become the hand. And if you fulfill your calling, you become the wrist. And if you follow your hand and then the body and the torso, and some of you even got to be the butt, I'm pretty sure that's my father-in-law here at the church, and man, you can, I'm just kidding. But you know I'm telling the truth. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, the toes and everything, and, and Heather's got to put up with them. I don't know what that makes her. And man, it's just, but here's the all together, we become the body of Christ, and we're fulfilling the purpose of the church. We have this mindset that the pastor's supposed to do everything. I know my calling. I know it. When you figure out your calling and you plug it in here, we become powerful together. John knew his calling. Man, it's not fate, it's not chance, it's not luck, it's not coincidence that you are breathing at this very moment. You're alive because God has a purpose for you. He says in Psalms 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose in me. God prescribed every single detail of your body. He chose your race. He chose the color of your skin. He chose your hair. He chose who you're going to love. He chose every other feature. He custom-made your body. He custom-made your mindset. He custom-made your emotions. He custom-made your mentality. He made you to be unlike anybody else for the specific purpose that he has for you. We'd be in trouble if everyone was like me. We'd be in trouble if everyone was like Phil. Man, the world would never stop. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know? The world would all be 
If it was like Kylie, just laid back and chilled, nothing get done. Just out of work out. That's why me and Kylie are so good. We're so opposite. Man, God made you. You just got to know your purpose. He, look what he says. This is beautiful. Oh, yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God. You are breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. Woo! That's good. I love that version, that message version of that verse. And God knows you. He made you. He shaped you. You just got to submit to his purpose for your life. I heard a preacher one time get up. I am not smart enough to preach this sermon, and it's way over my head, and I'm probably going to butcher it right now. But he took the life of Joseph, the father of Jesus, and he went back through the lineage, went through all these lineages, and saw that Joseph was actually in line through the lineages to be king one day. Somehow in Israel's sin, and this, and another king took over, and that lineage was broken. And he never got to achieve that. And he went to this angle. He said, Joseph could have grown up being bitter that he never got to be king. He could have grown up saying, man, that was rightfully mine, and become angry. And he said, but instead, Joseph looked out and said, but you know what? God's chosen me to raise the Messiah. I don't get to be a king, but I get to be a king maker. Man, you might not be the one up here preaching, but you might be next door in that kid's area, and you might be teaching the next pastor of this church about Jesus. You might be the person they walk in and they're ready to give up on life because they're sprung out and no one would love them. And you might be the hug they needed to get in this church where they get their life straight, where they go out and they help other addicts get clean. You might not be a king, but you might be a king maker. The problem is we all want to be the king. John said, I'm not a king. I'm a king maker. I'm not the Messiah, but I'm going to pave the way for the Messiah. You might as well hope the crock pot's on low. I gave you an early sermon last week. Tell him, Chris. Man, the happiest people in life that I know are not the richest people I know. They're not the most successful people I know. Matter of fact, I did. some of the most successful people I know are some of those miserable people I know. The happiest people I know are those who are living out their calling. Man, it's amazing. They don't care that they aren't on stage in the spotlight. They're content to show up here on Tuesday and fold clothes and sort this. They're not up here on the stage. They're content like that young man does every week to mop this place and cut the grass and blow the things you never see. People do... There's people in this, there's a lady, in, I, I shared this before, there's a lady in this church that's probably, by the world's standards of success, probably the most successful business family in our church. I, I don't know any way to put that, I don't want to sound weird saying that. 
And she shows up every week and cleans this church and cleans toilets. And, and you people are nasty in those toilets, BTW. She sends me pictures. You're gross. You ought to be ashamed. But she shows up every week and does it where you can come and mess it up again. She just knows her calling. And her calling is not to clean toilets, but her calling is to serve and to be an encourager and to be, the Bible talks about, the gift of helps. That man right there comes in here every week, seven years now he's been coming and leads worship. Has people call in at 4.30 in the morning. People get him to do this and do this. He shows up every week. He just sure don't do it for the money. Matter of fact, I joke that it costs him money. There's a lot of times he leaves his job on the weekend. In the early days, he used to get on an airplane and fly back just where he could lead us in worship. We're blessed now. we got Terry. He doesn't always have to do that. Barry shows up every There's times that Barry goes out and runs sound on Saturday night, comes in this church and sleeps in the chairs for two or three hours and gets up and runs that sound. You'll never know that. But he does it because he knows his purpose. Man. There's people that get here. I get here at 8 o'clock and they're already here working in the cafe, sending cards out to people in the hospital. There's some people, and I I feel like their gift is just the gift of it. I have one lady in this church and it's almost spooky. She'll send me a message on Facebook. How you doing? I ain't heard from her through. I'm doing good. How did you know I wasn't doing good? I could just tell. Oh. We got someone here, and their, their ministry is just to pray for people. You'll never know about them, but they have peace knowing their calling. What is your calling? I literally spoke with an addict the other day who's been clean about three years. I said, I don't know what my calling is. I'm, I'm just not a James. I said, thank God. <laughs> like, we don't, need, I didn't, we don't need them to be a James. You know why? We already got James. A lot of this grace from him. We already got a James. That person don't need to be a James. They need to be who God called them to be. John knew his calling. <laughs> I tell people all the time, what I do at this church is easy. It's easy to get up and yell at you for an hour. That's easy. All of you, what you do behind the scenes, that's hard. John said, I, I, I think it's great that he's come. Because I've just been the forerunner for him. He must increase and I must decrease. John knew who he was. John knew his purpose. And last, and we're going home today, John knew who Jesus was. Let me ask you a question today. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you honestly know who Jesus is? Or were you just taught about Jesus from your grandmother, but you don't know him? You have an understanding that he was a good man, but you don't know him. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? I didn't say, do you know of him? I said, do you know him? Well, I'm at church every week. I told you last week, Billy Graham said the biggest mission field in America is church on Sunday morning. It's full of people who are lost and going to bust the gates of hell wide open because they think they're going to church. They think they're going to church. Based on the fact that I had a, I don't, I don't see how much I want to call her out for. I had a very influential leader in our community. His wife messaged me this week and tell me I was a bully, that obnoxious, and that her husband was a good man and that I would oppose him. And she said, you need to learn who Jesus is. 
And I understood she was hurt. My wife's been in that position. Man, I, man, being a public figure is rough. So I was very sensitive in how I responded back to her. And I said, I'm so sorry that you're hurt and your husband's taken a beating. I've been there. I said, but I don't agree with your husband. I said, if you go back and read my post, I never called him a name. I, never, I just said, I don't agree with him and he's lost my vote. And I said, but as far as, oh, she said, we should get together one day for coffee and let me introduce you to my Jesus. I said, and as far as Jesus, I said, I see a Jesus, man, who was full of love and grace, but he also stood up for you. I said, I don't think your Jesus and my Jesus, which is the Jesus of the Bible, are ever going to line up, so we probably shouldn't have that discussion. And here's the deal. I don't want to say, I, I, I don't know if I should work that way. I don't want to judge this woman's heart. But I have a feeling from what I know of them, she doesn't know the Jesus of the Bible. She knows the Jesus of her denomination, she knows the Jesus of her traditions. She knows her Jesus of the way we've, we, we've Americanized Jesus. But do you know Jesus? Do you know, John said, the bride, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine and it's now complete. The problem with many of us is we don't know Jesus. We think he's a great man. He was a great teacher. He has some good teaching. We think he's a myth, but we don't think he's the son of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. <laughs> I've done it a hundred times. He says, I am that I am. Jesus is whatever you need when you need him. John 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. In John 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I'm the door of the sheep. In John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. In John 11, he says, I'm the resurrection. In John 14, way truth and the life. John 15, I'm the true vine. That'd be a good teaching series there. Phil, we all do just a series called I Am. Because over and over, he says who he is. Do you know Jesus today? Gary, I, you don't know what I'm involved in. You don't know my past. You don't know. I just got out of jail, Gary. Well, good. John's going to end up in jail. And they're going to behead him. So you're in good company. Paul wrote a lot in the New Testament in jail. Good for you. I'm not going to judge you. That's by the grace of God. I, and I have been in jail. It's by the grace of God I ain't been in there long. Unfit saints. John the Baptist would not be allowed in most churches today. But he knew who he was. He knew his purpose. And more importantly, he knew who Jesus was. God can use you right where you are. That don't mean you're not going to screw up along the way. I'm working on some things in my marriage and told my wife, I said, I'm working on this, this, and this. I said, but I need you to understand something. Just because I'm working on it, don't mean I ain't going to have days where I don't go back to it. You just got to slap me back and get me back on track. Don't ever tell Christine to slap you. <laughs> not good. You're not going to be perfect. You're still going to screw up along the way. It's not how many times you fall. Just make sure the times you get up is one more than the time you fall. You fall nine times, get up Ten. You fall 11, get up 12. You're going to fall along the way. 
Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. You are looking at the chief of sinners in this church. But God can still use you because he uses unfit saints.